This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where they shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you're keeping Veritas alive. Tonight, we present a September 11 special dedicated to all those who lost their lives and the loved ones left behind. It is for them that we continue searching for the truth. Closure can only come when we really know what happened that day. And to get closer to the truth, tonight's special guest is Dr. Judy Wood, who will discuss her new book, Where Did the Towers Go? The Evidence of Directed Energy Technology on 9-11. Dr. Wood will be with us shortly. To listen to the complete version of tonight's 9-11 special with Dr. Judy Wood, which, by the way, is over three hours long, our past and future shows, become a member. You will receive immediate access to all our inventory of shows, 
the Veritas private chat room, and the Manticore forum. Which, by the way, I am no longer posting a lot of news on our blog. I'm posting them on the forum. So if you are a Veritas member, take advantage of that. You have no idea what you're missing. It is not the traditional forum. And you, who have been listening to the first segment of this show for some time, isn't it time that you listen to the entire story, the full show? That's the only way this show survives. So I hope you become a member today. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and take Veritas with you. And to those who have written about MMS, it is back, domestic and international. To purchase, go to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the MMS link. And yes, we continue selling our 8GB USB drive with Season 1 and a lot of bonus material. What material? Go to the Veritas store and get ready to be impressed. Shows, ebooks, music, it's filled to the limit. If you need to get in touch with me, go to our website and click on the contact button or on Facebook. According to Dr. Judy Wood, the World Trade Center towers did not collapse on September 11, 2001. They were already turned to dust before a gravity-driven collapse was a possibility. Get ready to discuss how this was done. If you want to continue believing, stop this audio now. If you want to know, don't go anywhere. Dr. Judy Wood is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. This is Andrew Johnson, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Today is September the 11th, the anniversary of one of the darkest days in history. And I would like to take this opportunity to remember those who perished that Tuesday morning and the loved ones they left behind. You will never be forgotten. In the words of Dr. Judy Wood, for the record, I do not believe that our government is responsible for executing the events of September 11, 2001, nor do I believe that our government is not responsible for executing the events of September 11, 2001. This is not a case of belief. This is a crime that should be solved by a forensic study of the evidence. Before it can be determined who did it, it must first be determined what was done and how it was done. The order of crime solving is to determine what happened then, how it happened, by what weapon then, 
who did it, and only then can we address why they did it, the motive. Let us remember what is required to convict someone of a crime. You cannot convict someone of a crime based on belief. You cannot convict someone of a crime if you don't even know what crime to charge them with. If you accuse someone of murder using a gun, you'd better be sure the body has a bullet hole in it. And yet, before noon on September 11, 2001, we were told who had done it and how it had been done. This before any investigation had ever been conducted to determine what had been done. The popular chant, 9-11 was an inside job, is scientifically speaking no different from the chant that 19 bad guys with box cutters did it. Neither one is the result of a scientific investigation supported by evidence that would be admissible in court. Neither identifies what crime was committed or how it was committed. So let us consider the body of empirical evidence that must be explained in order to determine what happened. What will be presented is not a theory and it is not speculation. It is evidence. And tonight, we will be discussing the evidence of what happened on September 11th, 2001. Dr. Judy Wood received her BS in Civil Engineering in 1981, a Master's in Engineering Mechanics in 1983, and a PhD in Materials Engineering Science in 1992 from the Department of Engineering Science and Mechanics at Virginia Polytech Institute and State Institute at Blacksburg, Virginia. From 1999 to 2006, Dr. Wood has been an associate professor in the Mechanical Engineering Department at Clemson University in South Carolina. Among other skills, she is an expert in the use of moiré interferometry, a full-field optical method that is used in stress analysis. She's also the author of the book entitled, Where Did the Towers Go? The Evidence of Directed Energy Technology on 9-11. And directly from South Carolina, I would like to welcome Dr. Judy Wood back to Veritas. Hello, Dr. Wood, and welcome back. How are you? Oh, great. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure having you on, Dr. Wood. Uh, this is our September the 11th special. And after almost a decade, this is still in our minds, and, and many are still looking at everything but the evidence. Exactly. That's what you have been doing for almost a decade, too. Unfortunately, there are many who, one, don't want to look at the evidence, two, they don't want you to discuss the evidence, or three, they are being directed elsewhere, because finding out what we will be discussing tonight is not in their best interest. I've discussed this before. When there is a concerted effort to ridicule and shun someone, I've found that maybe we need to listen to what that person has to say. Those of you who have listened to me for some time know that I like to listen to all perspectives. I don't want someone to make decisions for me. Let me listen. Let me analyze. Let me digest the information and let me come to my own conclusion. That is my job. If there is something I don't understand, is the behavior many people have displayed against you, Dr. Wood, when you simply want to talk about the evidence. You are not trying to prove who did it or why. You simply want to know what happened that day. Am I correct so far, Dr. Wood? Oh, yes. Yes. Where did, my, my first question on day one, and still, you know, I, I was pursuing that. Where did the, the buildings go? Where did the material go? Is gone. You know, by the time the the uh, air cleared and you could see, which is about 30 minutes later, uh, it was just like a flat football field. 
just about. There was, you know, rubble, but not more than like a story or so high. Uh, definitely, it was dwarfed by comparison to an eight-story building right next to it. Where'd it go? Newscasters asked that same question, and for some reason, by the next day, they quit asking that question, and others quit asking it. It was not so acceptable to ask that question. And going back, just a quick summary of what we talked about last year. If I remember correctly, you now, in retrospect, you were lucky that you didn't grow up watching TV as most of us growing up. Therefore, you didn't have that programming that most of us go through. You know, we see someone on TV, we see the anchor on the six o'clock news, and, and we see the person talking about the news. You know, when you see a commercial, you know there's a script, there's a concerted effort to sell you a product. Now you turn on the TV and you see, for example, during the time when we were looking at the Iraq war and in preparation towards it, we see all these former military colonels, generals talking about why it was important to go there. People think it's just the news and you have all these respected individuals talking, when in reality, it was a very, very long commercial to make you believe that we needed to go to war. In other words, television, is a, it's a wonderful piece of mind control for all of us. What happened again when you woke up that morning and you started looking at the news? Well, I didn't first start looking at the news. Uh, I had a, a clock alarm radio that came on. I had adjusted to an obnoxious talk show so that it would make sure to wake me up. And it was a day I, I taught evening class. So I you know, went in late, but I was entering grades and so forth in the next room on my computer. And the thing kicked on and I didn't get up to go turn it off. And then in the background, I heard him talking about like some guy came home late from the party last night, made a wrong turn with his airplane, went into the and, and, and uh, went into the towers, ha, ha, ha. And then there's another one that did it too, ha, ha, ha. And, okay, I'm waiting for them to get to the punchline. And, you know, I'm kind of half listening to this, but the, the joke, what seemed like a joke, it was a sick joke, went on and on and on. And so finally I turned on the TV set and I see the, uh, the show. And one thing I've noticed is when um, I used to bike race a lot and you get crashes there seems to be five major categories of responses that people have naturally. You don't know where you are until you're in that situation. There's the organizer. Uh, then there's the one that can deal with the body. Sometimes those are the same person, but they're two separate roles. Then there's the equipment gatherer. Then there's the data collector. And then there's the useless ones. Of the useless ones... There's some of them who can follow instructions, but they can't function on their own. They just, they just stand there. But, but a lot of them are, are used, they're just they're just too out of commission to function. Uh, I think uh, we know where I fit in. <laughs> the data collector. Right. And a good example of this is uh, the San Francisco earthquake. When there was a cameraman who started filming the thing while it was happening in a car driving over the end of a bridge that was opening up, you don't have time to think. That's reflex. It's just what people do in various situations. Well, I turn on the, the TV, and I'm, I'm sampling every station my rabbit ears could tune into. I was even videotaping it. And one thing I noticed was that they were all playing the same tune. Wait a minute. 
you know, that, that struck me kind of funny because usually you have, you know, one of them's interviewing uh, someone who took their loved one to the airport and then someone else is a building engineer and then they're interviewing somebody who saw something. And no, these are all like slightly different uh, video angles, but all the same story. Almost and, as if they needed to read the script at a certain time, all of them at the same time. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's what it was or if they were getting uh, who was orchestrating it from where, but we didn't have um, the typical, you know, hodgepodge different. You've seen it before. When sure. You have, like uh, if there was an earthquake, you'd have a whole bunch of different people interviewing different people for different things and what they saw. That I thought was strange. And then there's something that started hitting me like uh, deja vu kind of with War of the Worlds, though I wasn't around back then. That's where they played this uh, fake uh, alien invasion on the radio show. Yeah, right. Um, and, okay, how do I know if that's what this is or not? We need more data. Ah, I have parents that live near the Pentagon. So I'll call up my mom and ask her if she, you know, looks out and sees if there's fighter jets overhead. After all, if the Pentagon's involved, sure, certainly, you know, if we're being attacked. I called her up. She didn't know anything was going on. Did you call her before the Pentagon incident? No, it was just after. But she wasn't aware anything was going on because, of course, she doesn't turn on the TV. Right. And um, she looked out, didn't see see any fighter jets, so we both decided it was a hoax. That's how we were both introduced to it, and I think it matters how you were introduced to it. Uh, My dad was out in his garden, and his neighbor who works at the Pentagon... Uh, came running home, ran over to him for comfort, all terrified. And she uh, believes that she saw the wing of the airplane take the roof off the Pentagon, or at least that's how my dad understood it. It turns out she wasn't at the Pentagon that day. She was at a meeting across town. But that's how my dad understood it. And he would not budge from that position that it was real. And you can't tell him otherwise. So I feel very fortunate to have seen those two different types of interpretations from the same family based on the introduction to the material. And I'm very privileged to have had the opportunity to read your book. Before you sent it, I had high expectations. But I have to tell you, if anyone who wants to know what happened to the towers, uh, you don't discuss the Pentagon or Flight 93 over Shanksville, Pennsylvania. If anyone wants to know what the conditions were that caused the towers to essentially pulverize, criticizes you without reading the book. It is simply, in my opinion, ignorance. You're not basing your conclusions on what you heard. You analyze data, every detail. You collected witness testimony and you connected many dots. You, you are an engineer. You are a professor of engineering, so your technical data may be intimidating to some, but your analysis is explained in such a way that those of us who are not engineers can understand it. Tonight, I want to be able to explore the most important areas of your book. But being that it's close to 600 pages, it will be impossible to dissect it in just a few hours. But let's try. First, there was pressure to conform. It happened to you. It happened to me. It happened to millions of people. I think I can speak on behalf of the majority who who watched the news that day. We believed everything we were told. We rallied behind our our president and accepted everything as, as fact that day. As you say, 
there was pressure to conform. How did the pressure to conform affect you? Well, at first I had my own opinion. That's what I like is, is to see what I see first and then see what other people think. Right. When I went into campus, I went into the faculty conference room. Well, well first I ran into my graduate student who said, um, Dr. Wood, uh, what's Al-Qaeda? Who's Bin Laden? I will never forget that. It, 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 this is before noon. This is before noon that day? <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're already talking about the alleged perpetrators. And, uh, uh, okay, go ahead. And my, my student hadn't heard of those names before, and he was asking me who these, what this was. Okay. And uh, then I went into the faculty conference room and watched the, the reruns of the tower going poof, and it looked to me like a sweater unraveling. And I, I looked like, you guys can't be taking this seriously. You know, kind of pointing at the screen like, this makes no sense. And they looked at me like I was a lunatic. Like, what kind of an idiot did we just hire? <laughs> and you kind of start keeping your thoughts to yourself after that. I went up to my office and started doing some calculations. You know, okay, what what would a building look like if it collapsed? Hmm. Nope, didn't look like that. Well, gee, it would... It, it would didn't seem like it go away that fast. Let me do some calculations. And being objective, I never made assumptions. I questioned myself every step of the way. Like, I must be crazy because I'm not conforming. Uh, it took, you know, a relatively short amount of time. I, I go down to the faculty conference room again and time it, and it's, it's like, you know, 10 seconds that the tower is gonna, goes away. Well, gee, according to, you know, regular uh, uh, high school level physics, uh, you calculate it, and that's like freefall speed from something from the roof. And that well, that can't be. I must have memorized uh, the value of gravity wrong. So I get out my physics book. Well, that's the number I memorized. Maybe there's something wrong with this book. So I get out another. I went through four books, try hoping for a different response from the books. And I realized no, that must be the the right number. I even found it, you know, got it in the American units and converted it to metric and so forth just to, for a difference. Just like, but what's going on here? And I went up to a, a colleague, to do, I didn't tell him what I was calculating. I asked him, is there anything wrong with his equation? And he looked at me like I was insane because, you know, that's something a high school kid should be able to do. And, okay, so what is wrong with this picture? I talk about cognitive dissonance, it's, it was incredible. But everyone around me was eating it up. I, I never felt so alone. It was like I was on a foreign planet. Why do you feel that you had what it takes to really, truly discern? Because to most of us, I'm not even embarrassed to say it, to most of us, we saw the pictures that day and we were so mentally programmed to follow everything even to the point, as you said, they were mentioning Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Who in the right mind was such a, a huge event not start with an investigation and then start naming the perpetrators maybe days, weeks later? And then we can even mention the Patriot Act, hundreds and hundreds of pages. Congress didn't even read it and they passed it because they thought it was an important thing to do. But Dr. Wood, there are many who continue to talk about explosions, mini nukes, thermite, Etc. But even with all of the above, can the buildings fall as fast as throwing a, a billiard ball from the top? No resistance at all? Uh, they didn't fall, but it was also faster 
than it would take to drop a billiard ball from the roof to the to the ground. They went away faster. I'm not saying they fell. They went away faster than that. Right. So that tells us that they didn't fall. Where'd they go then? If they fell, uh, you'd have a big thud on the ground, wouldn't you? And see how I continue to use the word fall? Because it's still, although I know now, after reading your book, that it's not what it was painted for me to, to understand. I keep using the same verbiage they want me to use. The, 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 like, like the pile? The, the pile, pile of rubble. <laughs> the pile of rubble, exactly. The, the steel that was taken to China. All those things are, are seared in our mind. And we don't question. And that's one thing I like about your book, too, that it's, it has dozens and dozens of color pictures, images, where you can actually see what happened moments after the towers disappeared. This is not happening. Those pictures weren't taken weeks later or months later when allegedly the steel was taken over to China. No, that was taken hours after. So I want to spend some time on the following chapter. This really affected me that day and to most people who watched the images, the jumpers. Mm-hmm. That has to be one of the most horrendous mental images for me that day. It's actually seared in my mind. Each and every person who jumped was a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a daughter, or a friend of someone. That aside, I'm looking at things objectively. I'm removing the emotion for a moment. Tough task. But conventional wisdom tells me they were jumping, either because it was too hot or they couldn't breathe. Essentially, the boiling frog syndrome. The water around the frog gets so hot that they jump. But you came to a different conclusion based on the behavior some of these people were exhibiting. Also, if you can share with us some of the witness testimony of people who say it was raining people. Tell us more about your conclusions regarding the jumpers. Yeah, those are some, uh, some quotes I start the chapter with. Uh, is, uh, let's see if I can, can find it. There you go. Uh, Oh, yeah, was just, there was a, quite a few different fi- firefighters who said that independently. It was like raining people. And there's, you know, people coming down here, there, and everywhere. And one interesting thing that occurred to me, when this one fellow was talking about, there's like uh, three or four people per face of the building of Tower One jumping per minute. Well, let's take the lower value. Let's say three people per face. There's four faces to the building, so that means 12 people per minute are jumping. The, it, it was going on for 102 minutes. Well, let's round it to 100. So that's 1,200 people. And there are, uh, what, 343 firefighters who were killed that day. Uh, that adds up to 1,543. You know how many different samples of DNA they could find as, you know, discreetly different, you know, samples, different people? How many? Less than 1,600. 1500, upper 1500 is right about that same number that were identified. And those who were identified were people who jumped? Or no, not, not people who identified per name, but identified as uh, a unique DNA. Different individuals? Yes, different okay. individuals. Right. But was that DNA taken from uh, the streets when they jumped, or were they taken from the quote-unquote rubble? Uh, it wasn't really specified. But um, 
I, I suspect it was it, it, it seems to line up pretty well with the jumpers seeing that there wasn't much of anything left of the building no desks no toilets no file cabinets well one file cabinet wasn't in the building it was in you know nearby you know nothing that you would recognize as being part of something in an office toilets I harp on that because you know junkyards you see parts of toilets these they're very obvious recognizable you know shiny porcelain right and they're pretty indestructible so why isn't there even a recognizable portion of one and and if you have to calculate how many bathrooms there were per floor we're talking about hundreds of toilets yeah, thousands. Thousands. Is it, the minimum requirements for building codes is X number per floor and X number per plus Y number for number of people and all of that. And I think I calculated out to around three thousand for the 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 complex. So uh, at least two thousand we should you know easily see. Before we talk more about what you think happened to the office desks, to the toilets, and so on, I want to stick with the people. Some of these people, when they jumped, they almost exploded while hitting the pavement. Some people may say, okay, this was so high that we're jumping above the 80th floor. But you have a different angle. Uh, yes. Uh, I could even say personal experience that you can survive such, such events. Um, but, you know, people hit a, hit a deer going at 80 miles an hour. And... They can't maintain control of their vehicle, but uh, the deer isn't pulverized. It's busted up. You know, one chance in a hundred the deer might live, but it's you got break. It, all the stuff is pretty much in one place. You don't find um, a, a, a cell of skin here and a cell of skin there and a piece of a hoof over here. And the thing's pretty much in one place, just busted up. Mm-hmm. Um, there's survivors of. Uh, skydiving accidents, the parachute doesn't open. There was also, uh, a couple years after 9-11, a survivor, uh, a window washer from the 47th floor in New York City. Um, you know, he was comatose for a while and busted up, but um, it was uh, sometime December or end of November. I forget exact dates when, but uh, I think the beginning of January he was discharged to rehab to, you know, for physical therapy, and he walks again and talks again, and he's you know okay now. Did he fall on the pavement? Uh, yeah, he was uh, window washing, so he was on that platform. His brother was with him mm-hmm. window washing, and he did not survive. Um, but yeah, it was a straight drop down. But on the the boards that that they because uh, the the pulleys or whatever broke mm-hmm. that hold them up, but they don't turn into you know a piece of finger here or a piece of skin over there, and that's what we have around the World Trade Center, you know, hand over here. You know, it's graphic, but the picture that really got me at first. It drew my attention. It, it just drew me to it. I didn't know why, so I don't force the data. It, it speaks when it's ready to. That's something important I'd like to say is um, if you listen to the data carefully enough, it will tell you exactly what happened. If you don't know, keep listening until you do. And 
I didn't know what this data said, but it was there was something in it that was trying to tell me something. And then it, I, I, I heard it one day, and it was this fellow that was outside of the 105th floor, hanging by a finger and a toe, or you know, a hand and a foot, taking off his pants. I noticed several other ones a few windows over had already had their pants off and their shirt off. And then you start wondering. Think of all the reasons someone would have to disrobe from the 105th floor while dangling out of the 105th floor. Is it because maybe they were hot? Your first thought is that it's hot. Well, the clothes then would protect them against high heat. It's like a, a mitt that you use when you flip hamburgers. Yes. You know, it protects your hand from, from cooking. And first thought I had is if I were there, um, gee, I would make a beeline to the bathroom and get whatever extra clothes I have laying around soaked down with water. water yeah. Wrap it around my head and then make a, a beeline for the door and hope I can get out. Well, if so if the water's still running, the the uh, you'd be wet from the wet wrap you'd have on yourself. If the sprinklers went off, you'd be wet from, from that. If the sprinklers didn't go off, you'd probably be hot and sweating, so you'd be wet from that. Any which way you look at it, it's a high likelihood that those people were wet. Okay, if it's smoky, and that's why they're hanging outside the window, uh, and for whatever peculiar reason they, they want to take their pants off, don't you just hold your breath, step in, take the pants off, then step back out? Why dangle over the, you know, the street 105 stories below to take pants off? Because you can hold your breath long enough to get inside. It must be that inside there's something that affects the clothing. Almost to make the water be almost like boiling while you have your clothes on? Uh, Different types of energy fields we know will do that. You've heard about the um, active denial system? Refresh my memory. Uh, it's for, for crowd control, where they beam microwaves at a crowd to it makes people feel like they're they're burning up, so they yes, back yes. off. They're using that in prisons now, I hear. Yes, yes. At first, I wondered, okay, is that what they're doing to, to make people jump so they have victims? Or, you know, I was kind of jumping around with ideas. But then, wait a minute. What if whatever it is is part of the weapon? that there's an energy field within the building. And if you have this building kind of encased in this grid work of, of steel columns all around the outside, uh, maybe that serves to kind of hold it in. Uh, so, you know, those, those thoughts start coming through your mind. But this one particular fellow I really connected to because it was like he was speaking to me and he needed his story heard. And if I were in his position, I'd want my story heard. And so I feel like I'm, I'm fulfilling that promise I made to him. Tell us more as to how you feel he was talking to you. Well, it, it's uh, the, the whole act of, you know, obviously showing that he's taking his pants off while hanging outside of the 105th floor. It, it leaves you with a few choices, a few conclusions you can come to as to what would motivate him to do that. And you see up and down the... When I first saw this picture, I didn't recognize that a lot of these people were missing their shirt or or pants. But then, you know, when the light kicked on for me, it's like, yeah, why are so many of them without clothes? 
And there was one fellow that's pictured you know, coming down from the building, and he's about, oh, 100 feet from the building, trailing a piece of clothing off of his foot, like he was not finished, you know, taking his pants off. So it was a, in a way, an involuntary reflex to some of these people to, when they're inside, they feel this heat permeating from their clothing, because as you say, probably the sprinklers were, were on and, and they... Well, I don't have evidence of that, but they, those are all the possibilities I could think of. Is It seems like whatever the case is, it's high likelihood that people are wet, either from their own doing, from the sprinklers, or from their, their, their own sweat. So, almost like the boiling frog syndrome. Even if there's fire outside of the, of the uh, boiling pot, their subconscious reaction will be to jump out because they can't handle the heat. In this case, they were just jumping out. Well, if if you uh, if your hand goes on a hot burnt, red hot burner on the stove, you don't sit and think about it. Your no. hand just flies off of it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But it what, might not have even been that. It might have been something else, you know, a force field or something. Who knows? But whatever the case is, there's something strange going on here. My parapolitical mind almost goes into overdrive. It's almost as if they wanted all those people to jump for, I hate to say it, folks, but almost as a dramatic effect to show how many people were jumping. And these, quote-unquote, Muslim criminals were perpetrating this to the United States, almost to create the drama. That could have been, but it also could have been a cover. For the oh. next hour, we see... Pieces of the building coming down, pieces of human skin falling out of the sky, pieces of, you know, everything was disintegrating in that volume of space and littering the ground. It, it, was, it wasn't like raining people. It was like snowing people. There was an accumulation on the ground. That's a little too graphic, so I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. We, we need to talk about the evidence, and if the evidence is this graphic, we have to do it anyway. And that's why at the beginning of this show, I say that this is a show for mature people. I'm sure that our listeners can take it. But when you have paper flying, but you can't see a toilet, a desk, or anything else, if this energy field caused the towers to pulverize, what effect does that have on human beings? Because some of these people were saying that they were just, it's almost as throwing, and bear with me here, folks, I don't mean to be this graphic, but it's almost as throwing a tomato on a wall. You probably have seen what happens when you throw a tomato on a wall. Is this what you mean when they were exploding? Um, I think some were exploding um, uh, midair. But oh, in midair. There was one, um, uh, one guy who said uh, something like, I didn't need to see that. I only looked for, for a second and I you know, didn't need to see that. Okay, how is that with conventional wisdom? It just for some reason, it reminds me of the movie Scanners. Some of you may have seen the movie Scanners when the guy's head just blows up. How is that physically possible unless there's something triggering that explosion in midair? What can possibly cause this? It has to be an energy field of some sort. Right. We don't need to say what kind of energy field, but something is not like it normally is in that volume of space. Can this happen in midair and not obviously to the people who are watching on the ground? Uh, you can have uh, energy fields, you know, very um, 
localized. After all, what what is um, uh, energy in the optical frequency? Light. Right. And you know, photographic film has very abrupt light and dark places, so you know that you can have, uh, you know, you can control the energy fields in very um, discrete boundaries. I'm just trying to wrap my head around this because it's so difficult to understand. And I borrow this quote from the late Arthur C. Clarke all the time, and I know you you have included it on your book. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And this is exactly what I see here, almost magic, because the next chapter is called Magic Shows and the Power of Suggestion. If we don't know of a new technology and can't wrap our minds around it, we simply think it's magic. We simply try to make sense of what we're seeing and what we're being told. We thought we knew what we saw. What did we really see, Dr. Wood? We have to see with our eyes, not with what we're, what we're told to see. And that sometimes is a challenge for people. Most people um, see what they expect to see. There's a, another good quote um, about that. Let's see if I can find it. Um, about people, uh, you know, they see what they expect to see, what they want to see, what conventional wisdom tells them to see, what their experiences tell them to see. Now, here it is. Yeah, we're talking about the fact that most people see what they expect to see, what they want to see, what they're, they've been told to see, what conventional wisdom tells them to see, not what is right before them in pristine condition. I think this is very well said. It's by Vincent Bugliosi. But it's expectations, and that is how magic shows work. They build your expectations so that you're seeing what they're directing you to see, not what they're doing with the left hand. <laughs> right, exactly. And that seems to be the case that day. And if people were outside of uh, where they're supposed to be looking, they were ostracized until they're, they're uh, herded in with the, the crowd. Well, or they just shut up. That's why from day one almost, we heard President Bush say you are either with us or you are with the terrorists. Yep. That was in everybody's mind. So if we heard anybody, and I've said this on the show a few times, it, this was years later, I think it was 2003, when one of my brothers sent me a PowerPoint presentation showing the Pentagon, uh, that it was impossible for an airplane to have crashed at the Pentagon. And I basically... Did not talk to him for weeks. You know, how dare you talk about our government being responsible for such a thing? Why would, in the world would they be lying? There's no reason for it. But then in silence, and I know this is what happened to a lot of you who are listening. In silence, because you didn't want to offend your families, you didn't want to sound like a lunatic, you didn't want to sound like a terrorist or a subversive person, you started looking until you started connecting the dots. And you started listening to other people. And you maybe have listened to Dr. Wood in the past. And this is where we are today, almost 10 years later. And the news that day had their own expert talk about how hot everything was, Dr. Wood. At the bottom of the towers was something called the bathtub. What is it and what was its purpose? Uh, that is where the key I found to the pretty much the whole thing is, okay, once you think about the timing, it doesn't make sense. The thing couldn't have fallen that fast. Well, but if it fell, it would make a thud on the ground, right? So let's go look at the seismic signal. What? Not much of a seismic signal? 
as if it didn't fall. Um, I used the Seattle Kingdome for comparison, and it made the same impact when it blew it up for with controlled demolition that uh, the towers made. But the towers were 30 times, that's, you know, 3 times 10 times the potential energy. So well, they, the Kingdome was an empty shell. Yeah, just a, a cylinder with a, a roof over it. Right. Not this tall, you know, building. And so uh, I think the Seattle Kingdom was 250 feet tall, not 1,368. One tower made the same seismic signal. The other one made less. So, okay, how much of the tower would there need to be that just disappeared in order for it to fall and make the same seismic signal that it made? Well, I calculated if you dissolve, you know, turn to dust... Uh, the upper, uh, uh, everything but the uh, low, bottom 16 floors of the South Tower, you would get the seismic signal that we got. So in other words, just the bottom 16 floors dropping to the ground would make the seismic signal. What about all the other floors? There's 94 more floors that you know are up there that, that crashed down. Well, and then I got to think, well, what happens if they did crash down? That's a pretty big impact. Let's see what they're sitting on, bedrock. Well, no, it's got this bathtub around. It's like a dike that holds out the Hudson River because the towers were actually built in the Hudson River with uh, this wall, um, retaining wall kind of around it, holding out the river. And they filled in, they brought, trucked in dirt and filled in out into the river to get more land. But the water table is, is uh, down 70 feet, or the building is 70 feet below the water table. So think about it. What would happen if you slammed that thing down, it busted the, uh, the wall, the bathtub wall. They call it a bathtub. It's kind of like the inverse. Water would be coming all over, right? You have uh, the uh, path train coming under the Hudson from New Jersey that ended up in the bathtub. And you have the subways that are connected to that. And, gee, you might flood, you know, <laughs> lower Manhattan. Right. Hmm. That's a lot of, okay, uh, under no circumstances would, would we want that to happen. Gee, wouldn't terrorists want to do that? But, um, And this yeah, was it, the largest structure ever constructed by man to fall or pulverize, right? I, I, I use dustify. So what, I use new words for new phenomenon. If you don't know what, what it is you're talking about, don't use a word that's connected to a known phenomenon. So we know what pulverize means, but we don't know what this is. So I, I've invented a new word, dustification, <laughs> dustifies. What's the difference between pulverize and dustify? Pulverize is a smashing. It's you know you only get down to a certain size of, of um, particles because dustification is a new term for the new phenomenon. It's not defined, so it can mean what I want it to mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if it turns out this is you know submicron size dust or nano size dust, okay, th- that's how I'll define dustification. Uh, I kind of define it as the, the process of turning a solid structure into powder in midair. It turns to dust. And pul- pulverizing would be like you smash something like with a hammer or 
against something else. Mm-hmm. Moving forward, the theory of, of conventional controlled demolitions, bombs in the building. Don't you need a lot of explosives and a lot of preparation to accomplish this? And wouldn't sniffing dogs catch this? Not only that, uh, if you're applying something to the uh, steel structure, uh, the, the people in their offices might tend to notice that the wall's missing one day. Mm. Well, how else do they get to the get to uh, apply the bombs in the building? And also, how long does it take to install these bombs? And these bombs have a shelf life in order to have them behave as you would predict them to behave. Um, you also have problems like how do you detonate them? You have a lot of deck cord. People say, well, remote control. Um, if you've driven past a, uh, uh, a quarry, there's signs that say blasting zone. Please turn off cells and two-way radios so you don't accidentally trip the thing. Right. How are you going to wire up a remote control detonation for 110 stories? How many bombs on each floor? How many separate signals in Manhattan? And not only that, but the proximity of one tower to the other. And be very careful not to, yeah, to spill one on the other. Right. So this theory of bombs in the building, and this seems to continue getting traction out there. You don't see it stop. Because nobody uh, thinks about it. It's, it's like a religion, I think. They just jump on the bandwagon, and they have to realize that they were hoodwinked twice uh, in order to get off that bandwagon. You know, it was the official story. Now there's this story. Right. And I wonder if, you know, the, the uh, um, purpose, part of the purpose might be to uh, get them to go back to the official story, especially when you have uh, debates with false, you know, choices. Bob's the building or the official story. Eating, meeting, mighty, mo. There's basically the quote-unquote official story, and then there's the false opposition with their own story. Right. The, the official alternative story. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. But let me play devil's advocate for a second. To those people who still think that bombs brought the buildings down, what about those quips? What caused them? Well, if you think about it, bringing, uh, you know, how many cubic uh, feet of a building down in 10 seconds? Let's say you're pancaking down. Um, you get a lot of air in that building. Mm-hmm. Let's pretend there's no desks or chairs or anything in there. Let's say, you know, somebody who's try- now is trying to say the buildings were all gutted out and they're hollow. Uh, well, okay, but you still have the floors that are squashing together. When they squash together, how much air do they have to eject out? And if they're falling at free fall speed so they get to the ground in like eight or nine seconds, you know how fast that air has to squish out of there by the time it gets to the bottom? Mm. It, well over Mach 1, even approach some of it there, that's the average speed. And, of course, the air in the center of the building to get out would have to be going in excess of Mach 2. So it's almost like the equivalent of me standing with a huge, invisible balloon and squeezing it, exploding, and the air is going out? It, right. And you'd have, but you'd have to have thousands of those. Right. Think how much volume of air in that building. And it would, you know, somebody had a, a soda can on the windowsill. It would be shot like a, like a, a bullet. bullet. And you'd have pockmarks in all the adjacent buildings, which we don't see. And I'm glad we're discussing this topic. Let's talk about the mini-nukes and thermite theories. Let's take the mini-nukes first. If mini-nukes had been used, paint a scenario 
of how things would have looked like. What problems do you see with this theory? Well, can you direct it? What I call directed energy weapon is energy that's directed and is used as a weapon. Uh, you can have weapons that involve energy, but it's not directed. Or, you know, if it's con- and I, this does include kinetic energy devices like bombs. Bombs are, you know, launching chunks of material that move quickly. And that's kind of like a, a nuke. But nukes also have heat. They're hot. Okay, now let's look at the evidence. You have unburned paper all over the place. If you had high heat, uh, it doesn't take much to catch paper on fire. That's usually how people start their um, their fireplace fires. <laughs> you know, you get some paper burning to get the next bigger thing burning. Mm-hmm. So, and also you don't have a seismic signal going, you know, a boom like that, a discrete boom. We're talking about mini nukes here, not the thermite, which I want to talk about right. later. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, bombs go boom. Uh, If you have one with sufficient energy, you know, to destroy all this material, it would have to really make a big boom, and there goes the bathtub again. Yeah, that's that's worse than 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 the slamming down, just gravity alone. Um, And especially, you know, even if uh, there were, you know, TNT or RDX or pick your flavor, you still have to get that material to the ground. And you would have a seismic thud when that stuff landed. You know, bombs just would break the building up into pieces, and the pieces then slam to the ground. Controlled demolitions are take, you know, cutting a building off its support and slamming it to the ground and having it bust up when it hits the ground. If we look at what happened that day, we had steel flying through the air, leaving the, the, the tower, and never reaching the ground because it, it looked like ice cream melting in midair. In mid-flight, it turned to dust. Bombs don't do that. Nukes don't do that. And, um, you know, heat, something that generates heat, uh, the paper would be burned. And I can't help but think of uh, Timothy McVeigh, 1995, Oklahoma yeah. City bombing, the fertilizer van that was standing there. Is it possible that the same technology that was used to, to dustify the towers. Is it possible right. that this was used in 1995 in the FBI building in Oklahoma? Yeah, there's cylindrical cutouts in that building. Uh, a fertilizer bomb on, at street level doesn't cause cylindrical cutouts from roof to, to the ground um, in the building. And another uh, thing that you've heard me talk a lot about, uh, toasted cars. There are toasted cars a block or so away from uh, the mirror building that remind me a whole lot of the ones, you know, several blocks away from the World Trade Center that spontaneously combust, or they appear to to undergo spontaneous combustion and weird fires. And also, uh, it causes the trunk lids to release, front and back, and sometimes door latches. Is it because the door latches are made of? Uh... Um, well, I don't know what they're. You know, it doesn't. We don't need to know what they're made out of. But we see a, a pattern that whatever it is likes to eat door handles or you know, and door latches, and engine blocks. There's certain types of materials that it likes to destroy first, which is is, it's uh, not conventional looking. You know, something doesn't get paper, but the engine turns to powder. 
And I think you call it, uh, I forgot if it was abrupt, an abrupt line where you see a car and you see that it completely burned in one, one area of the car. And all of a sudden, this area, clean, full line, is almost intact. How is that possible? As I say, the new wax job, it looks like showroom floor. Yes. Uh, in the back part of this police car, in the front, it's totally gone, you know, toasted. But I mean by toasted is it's toast. It's history. You can't repair it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're all done. you got to go get another car. Um, it's not necessarily implying heat. We don't know what did it, but it's, it's uh, damaged beyond repair. And so the, you have the front passenger door toasted completely. And the back passenger door on that same side of the car in pristine condition. With that that uh, line between the doors is an abrupt line. Hmm. What's different there? You have a rubber gasket around the doors. Could it be that there's something uh, that conducts through the metal that didn't conduct through the, the rubber plastic? gasket? Uh-huh. And then on the other side of that car, you have this toasted back side of the car, and you have this circular spot called the wax spot. It looks like a wax job right there. Like somebody was developing a picture in the dark room and dodged this, this one spot and didn't let, let it get exposed. Mm-hmm. And what was I saying before about energy that has an abrupt ending, abrupt line? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, optical energy does that. It was that wax spot car that really, you know, turned on the light bulb for me, saying this has to be a type of interferometry. Now, I'm saying that how do you explain, for example, I saw some vehicles were inside, they were completely toast. And I don't mean it as you cannot repair it. They were toast <laughs> as in burnt. And you uh, see the whole... Uh, dissolved like Swiss cheese. Uh, they holes. were. With the exception of, you see the... Fire extinguisher. The, the seat belt. You, you oh, see, that one, yeah. Yeah, you see the, the actual upholstery. You see a lot of stuff that's not metal. Completely, yeah, it's dirty, yes, but it's completely intact. How is it that if it was fire, that it did not consume those areas of the car? Yeah, there's different things. Like the, uh, the one with the plastic molding around the window. Yes. Where the outer part of it is all blistered up and looks like it's, you know, super corroded out. But you have this bright, shiny blue seatbelt right next to it hanging. And, and the plastic uh, or um, uh, window trim that doesn't look heat-affected at all. You know that there's something that affects one material and not another. Right. And it's not heat, not conventional heat. Unless they say that those materials were fireproof, which I doubt. Uh, even fireproof, you would have, you know, some different, you, you know, if you have a fire below it, you'd have smoke, you know, dirt and stuff discoloring it. There's no discoloration on that blue seatbelt. So if whatever was causing this was not, let's say, hot, what was causing the fire, which is obviously hot? And isn't that what caused also some of the explosions? Because once there's an explosion, the gas that's inside has to come out. Uh, you hear me, you know, hesitate about calling it fire. So what appears to be fire, what appears to be spontaneous combustion, mm-hmm. but we don't really know. It just looks like a fire, and that's that's where this thing also pulls a trick on you. If you assume something is what it looks like, because you're you're matching it with previous knowledge you have. 
but then you start looking around. If the paper's not burning, what is that? And there's actually some testimony by uh, one of the firefighters who said, well, at first, the water had no effect on these vehicles. They were trying to put out car fires, but the water had no effect on them. That's bizarre. It perhaps, you know, whatever it is becomes a fire, but initially it's something else. And you start looking at that something else, and you start wondering. What? Okay, here's another example of weirdness. Uh, folks have seen that orange stuff, uh, looking stuff pouring out of a window of one of the towers. Yes. And they say, ah, molten metal. That's an assumption they're making. You can't tell what it is that's pouring out, whether it's hot. Maybe it's, you know, neon Kool-Aid. Uh, you can't tell what it is. But if you're trying to say it's hot, it's glowing because it's hot, well, it could be any material because materials, when they're hot, glow, it, you know, no matter what they are. Um, okay. They're assuming because it's glowing, it must be hot. Nope. Hot things glow, but not everything that glows is hot. The, the best example I can think of is incandescent. Yeah, incandescent, incandescent versus fluorescent. Right. What's in a fluorescent lamp that glows? Plasma. The gas. It's a plasma, and the, you know the, the uh, ions and stuff are changing. Ionization of it is changing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. We're learning something here. So that we can't rule out that there's some type of a, an effect of a plasma, some type of a weird energy field that is triggered by something. Now let's look up and down. I call it the swamp. West Broadway, where we had cars for several blocks, like four or five blocks that were just toasted. Uh, every single car toasted. But before you tell me that, because yeah. this is a, a portion of the okay. book that I want to discuss afterwards, uh, okay. I have one more that I want to just ask before we take a quick intermission. Here's a theory that, in my opinion, is the one most discussed by the truth movement. Thermite. What is thermite used for, and why don't you think it was used on 9-11. And I'll get your answer on the other side. Once again, the book, I have to really emphasize to anybody out there who's listening to me right now, who has been programmed by the opposition, the false opposition, the truth movement, we are all part of the truth movement. And instead of being so divisive all the time, and I see this in many, many places out there, namely forums, where they criticize Dr. Wood for, for her analysis and her research. I welcome anybody who discusses 9-11 professionally in a serious fashion to come here to the show. I'm not going to ridicule you. I'm going to allow you to state your part. And it is my job and the job of those listening to discern and make your own decision. But I'm not going to call your names. I'm not going to ridicule you or shun you. And this is something that has happened to Dr. Wood for years now. And I really don't understand it. And probably this show and a few others are very unique in that we allow her to talk and say her part. And after the show is over, you can decide if you want to pursue understanding this more or not. If you decide to buy her book, which I highly recommend to anybody out there who has questions as to what happened that day. She's not discussing if it was Al-Qaeda or the hidden hand, the New World Order. She does not touch that. Where did the towers go? The evidence of directed energy technology on 9-11. Tell us 
how to get it. We have links on our website, but when is it going to be available for people to buy? I'm hoping in uh, the next few weeks. Can't uh, pin down the exact date yet, but it'll be available soon. I highly recommend it. Once you see the book and you see the amount of analysis, imagery, and basically it's analyzing the evidence. This is not rumor. This is not something that you heard. As a professional, as an engineer, as a professor, she is helping us connect the dots. Dr. Wood, once again, how do we get in touch with your work? Uh, DrJudyWood.com. That's D-R-JudyWood, all one word, dot com. And it is not Woods. A lot of people out there type Woods and you won't get the right website. Correct. I might add something else. Uh, Talking about the ridicule factor. I've realized that those who ridicule my work, call me names, whatnot, it's actually an admission that they know that they 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 uh, cannot find anything wrong with what I'm saying. Otherwise, they would address that instead. It's, in my opinion, a defense mechanism mm-hmm. because they can deal with it, and they more than likely have been instructed not to. And mm-hmm. I hate to even bring it up. We are, many of us who listen to the show, including myself, we are fans of the show Coast to Coast AM. And as we mentioned this on the last show, you were invited and shortly disinvited, maybe a few hours or days after, and you were not called back. And they have invited every single researcher on 9-11. It really makes you wonder if what Dr. Wood has to say is something the perpetrators don't want you to know. That said, this is Mel Fabregas. I hope you stay with us. You're listening to Veritas. We're here with Dr. Judy Wood on this 9-11 special. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more, two hours more, commercial-free, with Dr. Judy Wood on this 2010 9-11 special. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We are also discussing this show at our forum. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
Howdy, this is Jim Mars, and you're listening to Veritas. Pay attention.